Welcome to Faith Bible Church's Midweek in the Word podcast, where we are together seeking to become better readers, hearers, and doers of the Word each week. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Midweek in the Word. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode. Uh, if you've been listening for a while or you're new to the podcast, you would... Uh, my, my name is Brad Myers. I'm Faith Bible Church's adult ministries pastor and your host each week on this on the podcast. Um, and this week, I'm thrilled to say that I am joined by a new guest and, and a guest that's maybe not a familiar voice or known to some of you as our listeners. Uh, his name is Brad Orta, uh, Country Bible Church's pastor. Um, and and you're, uh, help me understand, Brad, what, what is your official title uh, there at Country Bible? I'm not really sure. <laughs> there, there we go. Uh, a pastor. Uh, is a, the... I'm an associate pastor at Country Bible. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, and help me, did, did I pronounce your last name right? That's as close as anyone gets. <laughs> there we go. Well, how, do you, how do you pronounce it? Maybe I should ask. Uh, I say Orida. Okay. It's, it's Czech, and like most Czech names, it doesn't make sense. It's Ojeda. <laughs> there, there, okay. Okay. Well, there, there you go. Officially from Brad, in case, you, in case you run into him, that's the pronunciation. But, but Brad, we, we appreciate you taking the time and stepping in on the podcast here, coming in from Country Bible, um, one of what... What we like to think of as one of our sister churches in in the Lincoln area that we get the chance to partner with, um, and 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 just because you're new to the podcast, Brad, a lot of times our listeners are used to hearing from Tom, who is obviously a familiar voice to those on the podcast. But because you're from a different church, and many of the people that are listening may not know you, I uh, just want to take a moment here at the front end and get an idea of of your story for our listeners. So so what's your story? How did you end up as an associate pastor at Country Bible? Well. Uh... I came into ministry, I guess, around 2007. Uh, I was getting ready to graduate from UNL, and Country Bible was uh, is the church that I came to faith in and sort of grew up in through my high school years. And at the time, they were looking for someone to teach a senior high Bible study. Mm. And so I came on staff part-time to do that and a few other things. And over the years, it just kind of evolved, I guess. <laughs> there you uh, go. And, uh, yeah, I had uh, heard uh, over the years, you know, to consider ministry, to consider ministry, actually a, a former pastor here, uh, Robert Silius, uh-huh. uh, helped me think through some of those things. And mm-hmm. uh, at the time, I decided ministry wasn't for me, but uh, God kept closing other doors. Uh, and eventually I realized uh, that I, I was called and I wasn't going to get away from God. There so, you go. The hound uh, of heaven, I'll, I'll yeah. tell you what, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so what was your degree at the university? I don't think I've ever asked you that. Uh, I uh, ended up with a BA in history. I okay. was going to get a degree in secondary education, uh, but when I got the call to Country Bible, uh, I decided that there really wasn't any point in doing student teaching, uh, mm-hmm. since I wouldn't be teaching uh, in a high school anymore, and... Uh, so I had enough credits just to take a BA in history. So I took the degree from UNL and uh, then went to seminary from there. Yeah, and I was I was going to ask on that because since then you've you've gone and completed a degree in seminary. Could you share a little bit about what that is and and where you went to school for that? Yeah, uh, I was uh, very blessed uh, when I was called to Country Bible. Uh, they knew that I <laughs> had a lot to learn still. <laughs> And so they graciously uh, agreed to help pay for seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started taking classes uh, through Moody. 
Uh, and then over time, I realized God was calling me elsewhere, so I transferred to Southern, and I mm-hmm. finished my degree at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Very nice. And, and what degree was that? Remind me. Uh, I have an MA in Christian theology. Mm-hmm. I was uh, six hours short of uh, my Master's of Divinity, and Tracy and I were in the process of adopting, and one of the conditions... Uh, in the adoption was that one of the parents had a, a graduate degree. But I had more than enough credits to take the MA. I was almost done with my MDiv. And uh, so a couple years ago, I applied for the MA to graduate with the MA so that we could move forward with the adoption. Mm-hmm. And Eli has come home. Uh, and now I can uh, go back in and finish my degree. But since bringing uh, my son home and then I spent some time in the hospital a while ago, and mm. life just has seemed a little too busy. Uh, <laughs> That's lately, how it goes. Um, to to finish it out, so I still need to finish a Hebrew class, mm. and then I'll have an MDiv. Very good. Well, we're we're going to rely a little bit uh, today on the podcast on on both your your expertise uh, from your from your master's degree as well as maybe a little bit of the history degree that you took your undergrad in. As we're going to get back to some of that, but before before we go there, um, also just just fill us in a little bit uh, with where where is Country Bible for our listeners? And you said you do a little bit of everything, but what do you what do you do as an associate pastor there? Uh, basically, if you could imagine. Uh... Right. Mike Kurtzler is kind of a rock star. If you imagine an ineffective Mike Kurtzler, maybe that's sort of like (laughs) my role. I'll be sure to let Mike know next time I see him. Yeah, let him know. So I uh, help with some administrative detail. I help a lot with uh, children's ministry, youth ministry, uh, Mm -hmm. help with some pastoral counseling, work a lot with missions and adult education. Uh, I... uh, I don't know that I really have a main focus hmm. to my job. It's primarily just, uh, you know, I try to fly under the radar and make sure everyone else is equipped to do ministry to the best of my ability. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, if I see a need, I try to fill it. Very nice. Very nice. Well, we appreciate your willingness to step in on, on where we're going and on the podcast. Uh, this week, the reason I've asked Brad to step onto the podcast is we're going to be covering the idea of the canon of Scripture and what, what books were included in the Bible, why some of that sort of thing. I know it's something that a number of our listeners have asked about at different times. But but before we get into that, let me just let me just review here for us a little bit uh, this afternoon as, as, as we continue on our Route 66 series series, Snapshots from Genesis to Revelation. If you're new to the podcast or to the church, uh, we have been going from Genesis through Revelation, and Tom's been taking our church um, through each book of the Bible through major characters in Scripture. And this last week on on Sunday, Tom was speaking from Luke 3, and he was talking about the character of John the Baptist, which is a familiar character probably to many of you. And so each week, Tom wasn't able to join us, but each week on the podcast, some of the things we like to ask Tom about is, is what were the major things that, that we should take away from the sermon? What do we learn about God? What did it reveal about mankind or ourselves? And then lastly, how did this person specifically 
point us to Christ. Tom shared some of his thoughts on this subject with me and wanted me to share them with you as our listeners. On the, on the subject of what we learned about God, um, he really wanted to emphasize the reality that even in the 400-year period of silence, God was working out his purposes to fulfill his plan um, by preparing John the Baptist's parents and then obviously by working out the miraculous uh, work of, of John's birth. Um, God was at work um, in, the, in the history and in that period of time. Uh, as far as what it revealed about mankind, it was just another constant reminder of our sinfulness and rebellion against God, the fact that Christ is the solution to the sin problem that we covered in the Old Testament. And John, as the herald, had the opportunity to, to proclaim that Christ as the Messiah had arrived. And then obviously how it pointed us to Christ, the strongest link that Tom wanted to, to emphasize there was God's lamb, that the lamb that all of the Old Testament, that the story of Abraham, the sacrificial system was pointing to so much in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And so just coming back to those themes and remembering how John's story points us to Christ as well. Hopefully that's that's a good reminder refresher for you listeners. Obviously, you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that on occasion we like to step away from the, the themes that are specifically involved with Tom's sermon, and we want to talk on some other things that are related to how do we interpret the Bible. And as I was looking over the remainder of the year and what topics we had covered and hadn't covered, trying to get a, a well-rounded understanding of biblical interpretation, I realized that before wrapping up 2020, we had one more theme we absolutely had to cover, and that was the theme of the canonization of Scripture. Um, now, Brad, in, in case our, un, our listeners are unfamiliar with this topic, I just want to start out with some groundwork here, and what do we even mean? by this idea? What is the canon of Scripture? Yeah, uh, take it from Latin word, and basically we should understand canon to be like a rule or like a measure, a yardstick. Okay. Uh, and over the years I've read, uh, people say that uh, Scripture is a canon in the sense that there was a, a yardstick uh, that the books of the Bible were measured against, and if they mm. measured up, then they should be considered canon. And I've also read other people suggest that uh, Scripture is the yardstick by which we should measure everything else. Hmm. Uh, and honestly, I have no idea which <laughs> one is right. Uh, <laughs> I go. tend to think uh, both are true, that hmm. uh, the books that we consider to be the canon, the Scriptures, uh, have measured up uh, historically in the Church's estimation against some pretty hmm. uh, uh, strict guidelines uh, yeah. to be considered canon, but at the same time, it's the measure by which uh, Christians, the church, should judge everything. We mm. rest under the authority of Scripture, and mm. so maybe it's okay to think about it as both. There you go. Well, I want to get into the, the, the second point there as far as what criteria they were measured against here in a second, but for the time being, let's focus a little bit on that second idea as far as it being the measuring stick, um, because one of the things that I think we've got to wrestle with is, is why this question of which books were included in our canon, in our Bible, um, why, why is this so critical to us as Christians? Yeah, uh, it's... <laughs> Really, we couldn't overemphasize the importance mm. of this issue. Like uh, the whole process like, that maybe we'll talk about, about how the canon was formed, mm. is really prompted by the fact that there were some early, like in the first few centuries, there were some early heresies where um, the heretics themselves were questioning uh, if biblical teaching contradicted 
whatever they were teaching, like whether or not it should mm. really even be considered scripture in the first place. So like Marcionism, some issues regarding the Trinity and yeah. the person and work of Jesus Christ, or specifically, could Jesus be both God and man, prompted the church to say, uh, no, these are the authoritating, uh, authoritative teachings of Scripture. Hmm. Um, but even uh, at the Protestant Reformation, hmm. uh, you know, like the second major division in the history of the church, uh, part of the issue, I think, ultimately was disagreement about the nature of Scripture. Like, hmm. what is... Uh, what makes uh, what measures up as canon, uh, and ultimately maybe also say, uh, is the church's authority superior to scriptures, or is mm. scripture superior to the church's? Mm. Can't help but think, listeners, if you're familiar with what Brad's talking about as far as the the five solas that in a lot of ways defined the Reformation and those creeds, sola scriptura being one of those primary themes that that scripture is our foundation for truth. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But in the uh, in the wake of Luther's trial, you know, we have the Council of Trent, and mm. uh, the Catholic Church uh, in council adds uh, the Apocrypha to Scripture mm. as a, a second canon. And so, even like maybe they could agree, well, yeah, only Scripture, but Scripture is also these other books that uh. Uh, we hadn't previously. Very good. Scripture. But before we get to that, I don't, I don't want to get lost too far in the weeds, uh, but give us, give us that brief history a bit here. Help us understand both Old Testament and New Testament. How did this, this idea come about? How did we get the Bible of the 66 books we now have? Yeah, uh, I think in some ways it's a pretty simple process. In other ways, uh, there's uh, some complication or maybe the, the process is sort of surprising for Christians, though I think the more we think about it, it it shouldn't really surprise us mm. all that much. Uh, there's, uh, at least in the Protestant church, there's never really been much contention about mm. which books should be considered the Old Testament. Uh, commonly, uh, uh, as early as I think 170 uh, AD, we were seeing uh, prominent Christians in the Mediterranean basin citing the books that... Uh, we would call the Old Testament hmm. as uh, authoritative. And for the most part, they were just uh, receiving books that uh, Jews would have understood to be authoritative and uh, affirming that they were scripture. There wasn't any alteration. Uh, hmm. Really, the only question, um, significant question for the church was about the book of Esther. Hmm. Uh, but even then, uh, the question wasn't, uh, did Jews consider it scripture? It was, is this helpful because God isn't mentioned mm. by name right. uh, in the book? Right. And of course, in the end, the church decides that, well, God is very intentionally not mentioned by name in the book because uh, we were supposed to see that yeah. uh, the lack of God's mention is supposed to highlight the fact that God is tying all these events together for the benefit of his people. Yeah, yeah, very good. So then moving into the New Testament, where there was a bit more contention, um, what did that? How did that work out historically? Yeah, and I, I guess I should add uh, that later in the history of the church, uh, early in the church, there was really no question about the mm-hmm. apocrypha. Uh, it sounds like you guys were just talking about the intertestamental period mm-hmm. uh, in church, mm-hmm. and so there are a handful of books from the intertestamental period uh, that Jews wouldn't have considered scripture, and that for the most part Christians in the early church didn't consider to be scripture. Um, 
But eventually, later in the history of the church, were considered by some in the church, notably the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. to be scripture. Um, but the early church was mostly looking at those books and uh, saying that while they might be helpful for Christians to read, we should not understand them to be scripture. Um, there are a lot of issues with those books. Uh, they can contain historical errors, chronological errors, geographical errors. There's some doctrinal teachings that aren't consistent with the rest of Scripture. Um, and maybe even more importantly than the Jews not considering them to be authoritative Scripture, Jesus and the apostles clearly don't consider mm-hmm. them to be authoritative Scripture. If we understand uh, Jesus and the apostles approvingly quoting the Old Testament what we would call the Old Testament, something like 300 times, like directly in the New Testament, Mm. and never once quoting from an apocryphal book that uh, probably in Jesus and the apostles' estimation, it would be a mistake to consider the apocrypha authoritative. It doesn't necessarily mean there aren't things that are true in those books, but they aren't uh, truth in the Mm. way that Scripture is truth. They're not. They're not the 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 yardstick that yeah. you've already referenced. They, yeah, exactly. they don't rise to that level. Exactly. Similar to a, a Christian book today. Any Christian book you'd uh, pick up, maybe there are true things in there. Maybe there's some things that aren't <laughs> right. true in there. Uh, a discerning reader might want to read it and pick the fish from the bones, right. but we can't hold it out as truth. Mm. Very good. Okay, well, well, you've addressed a little bit of, of the apocryphal books and, and, and some of those and why they didn't make, make the cut, if you will, or, or measure up to authoritative, inerrant scripture. Um, but you also mentioned that there was criteria that scripture had to measure up to. Could you give us some idea what, what that looked like? What were the standards that the New Testament church put in place there? Yeah, the process for recommend, uh, recognizing the New Testament was a little bit different than the Old Testament relatively early in the history mm-hmm. of the church. The Old Testament minus the Apocrypha is recognized as scripture, but you know if you if you think about it, like uh, the apostles couldn't have approved. There's not a list of approved New Testament books in the New Testament because the New Testament <laughs> right. wasn't written yet. Right. Like yes. uh, you know, if you date Revelation somewhere around 90 A.D., mm. uh, you know, by 100 A.D., maybe even 150 A.D., there were churches in the Mediterranean basin as spread out as it was that might not have all 27 books. Hmm. Uh, Surely it took a while when you were uh, paying uh, uh, a lot to have books copied and then distribute them in the first century for all the books to be disseminated across uh, the Mediterranean world or across Hmm. the church. Uh, And so it shouldn't surprise us that uh, the church is affirming the Old Testament in 170, uh, and there isn't anywhere, or at least not that we've found, a list of books that are considered uh, binding and authoritative in, uh, in the same range. It's not until 367 AD that uh, Pascal writes, or excuse me, Athanasius writes in the 39th letter to Pascal, uh, a list that we would consider to be the first list, mm. uh, that is the New Testament. And then... Thirty years later, at the Council of Carthage, uh, the Church in Council officially affirms what we consider to be the New Testament. Yeah, but obviously, what what you're saying there is is recognition of the books. It's not they 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 put on these books something that the Church hadn't recognized. And so, how did how did that process of recognizing the right books go about? Yeah, so uh, part of the uh, 
issue, I think, is as I mentioned earlier, that there were uh, some heresies were prompting mm. the church to need to solidify or crystallize, like, no, these are New Testament books, there are no others, and mm. these are authoritative. Yeah. So, you know, you might be preaching an anti-Trinitarian version of you know, pseudo-Christianity with this denying the Trinity, but that's contradicting something clearly taught in the New Testament, yeah. and so what you're preaching is not Christianity. It's a false right. gospel. Right. Uh, and it's not until, as is the case in historical theology, it's not really until there is some sort of heresy that, uh, you know, the church has to respond. You yeah. know, if you, if you look at the history of the church and say, well, there's really not a lot of discussion about, you know, questions regarding gender and sex uh, mm. until now, uh, it's not because uh, probably if you would have asked a person a thousand years ago if they had an opinion, they didn't have an opinion. Right. It's not until those things are openly questioned does the church right. need to respond to the question. And uh, fortunately, the church thought very early on when responding to questions regarding the Jesus' nature and the nature of the Trinity we just need to settle once and for all which books are authoritative or recognize mm. which books are authoritative. And uh, questions that were asked to, to settle that uh, amongst the churches, uh, namely, uh, could the book be connected to apostolic authority? Mm. Uh, and most of, all but five of the New Testament books, I think we can directly connect to apostolic authority, you know, uh, and even even of the five that aren't directly connected to apostolic authority, uh, they're indirectly connected to apostolic authority. So like the Gospel of Mark, for instance, mm. Mark's not an apostle, but he's a close associate with Peter. And I think uh, if you're honestly reading the account in Mark, it's pretty clearly Peter's reflection Peter's on, yeah. Yeah, Peter's yeah. Reflection on the story. Or uh, Luke and Acts. Luke's not an apostle, uh, but... Uh, Luke is a very close associate with Paul. You, you clearly see that in the second half of Acts when uh, he, being Paul, mm. becomes we, being Paul and Luke. Uh, that Luke's uh, and Paul's ministries were very closely linked, and surely Paul affirms the message that Luke is presenting in Luke mm. and Acts. Maybe uh, Jude uh, would be another one, not an apostle, but as a, a half-brother of Jesus uh, and one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church with his other uh, Brother James, uh, I think the church understood them to have some insight. Plus, uh, doctrinally, there's a lot of overlap between what Second Peter mm. covers and what the Book of Jude covers. Really, the the main question would be uh, the Book of Hebrews. Yeah. Honestly, I don't I don't have any idea who wrote the Book of Hebrews. <laughs> right. Early in the church, you would have found a lot of people that suggested that Paul did it. But even back then, Origen, for instance, said. Uh, talking about the book of Hebrews, who wrote it, God only knows. Yeah. Uh, that probably uh, there were quite a few people that assumed it was Pauline. Uh, there are probably fewer people today that consider Hebrews to be a Pauline letter. Um, but I think the quality of the book of Hebrews mm. uh, clearly demonstrated, demonstrates that it's revealed uh, in nature. Like the high Christology of Hebrews... Mm the way that Hebrews helps us understand uh, how the Levitical system is fulfilled in Christ is incredibly important in the overall biblical narrative. Um, and that, I think, leads to 
one of the second main things they considered, and that was, uh, is, it consist- is the book consistent with the rest of Scripture? Um, there are books that we know to be Scripture, the Old Testament writings. Uh, is that book consistent with the rest of Scripture? And even if it was known to somehow be connected to apostolic ministry, if there's any inconsist- inconsistency with Scripture, it wasn't further considered for canonization. Hmm. Uh, and then finally, uh, even if it's known to be um, connected to apostolic authority, even if it is consistent with the rest of Scripture, there's another uh, sort of qualification that uh, is like, uh, was it uh, generally applicable, applicable to churches? Mm. And uh, was it like, was there some spiritual benefit to its reading? Uh, and so, like like Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. Yeah. Like there's an assumption in the early church that there's got to be some quality about it where like it's clearly revealed truth from God. And so we know, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing about a letter he had sent previously. Uh, so there's a 1 Corinthians that predates for what we call 1 Corinthians. <laughs> right, right. And I'm like, well, why isn't that in the Bible? Uh, yeah. And of course, we don't know what was in the letter, uh, <clears throat> But I think it's probably safe to assume that it, if if it was preserved and the early church was considering it, probably they read it and thought, well, it isn't generally applicable. It's so specific to the Corinthian situation that there's not a lot here that's to the benefit of hmm. the church. Hmm. Uh, and so the church uh, accepts uh, as the New Testament books that are connected to apostolic authority uh, that are that bear a special, uh, like a... a uh, element of truth that clearly demonstrates the the revelatory nature of the scripture and are consistent with the teachings of the rest of scripture. Very good. Okay, so the, this this history that we see it brings us to, you know, this is how the books were were recognized. To your point, Old Testament books almost a given. New Testament books going through what had been recognized across between the new churches. Uh, but obviously, in today we recognize that we're a a far cry from the first century. You know, we don't know the authors that wrote a lot of these books like some of the churches would have and things like that. Um, so we recognize there's a, there's a great deal, even just in our modern scientific era of, of skepticism, just a, a prevailing sense of skepticism, but particularly a skepticism <laughs> about religion or uh, the idea of inerrancy in a book. Um, so, so give us an idea in your experience as a pastor, uh, what are some of the specific uh, attacks or questions that you've, you've seen leveled against the canon of scripture and, and how do our listeners address those in their own minds? Yeah, I think you kind of already uh, hit on one that has uh, been dividing the church for about the last hundred years. And that's like inerrancy versus infallibility. Hmm. Uh, that there are some people that claim that, uh, Scripture is true when it's discussing matters of faith and practice, uh, but not necessarily true in all facts it relates, yeah. uh, where like faith uh, or country Bible uh, would claim, no, Scripture is inerrant. Any truth in Scripture, regardless of what it's about, is true. Yeah. Uh, and certainly that's been an issue for the church to grapple with this century, uh, leading to like the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Yeah. Probably more commonly, uh, I hear that the Bible is full of contradictions, uh, mm. not from my people so much as people outside the church, yeah. uh, or dealing with people in my church that are hearing that from other people. And uh, certainly, uh, that's a attack. If you've not heard, you should expect to hear it at some point in your life. 
Uh, and I, I think the response is pretty simple, uh, is to as graciously and lovingly say, uh, really, where are they? I'd like to see them as you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, very often, people that are leveling that sort of attack uh, against Scripture really have no familiarity with Scripture at all uh, and and aren't aware of any apparent contradictions in Scripture or direct contradictions in Scripture, but have heard that from other people, yeah, and yeah. they're just relating yeah. what they've heard. And uh, there are some apparent contradictions in Scripture, um, but even those, I think, with just a little bit of knowledge about like the nature of Scripture or history or the dynamics of uh, you know, Hebrew speech, uh, a person can uh, pretty quickly see that, yeah, there appears to be at first glance a little tension, but if I read the five verses before and the five <laughs> verses after, I say, oh, this is actually what's happening. Yeah. You know, well, when we read verses in isolation, uh, we can maybe think that they contradict some other portion of Scripture, <laughs> but... Uh, this, this is another no... shameless plug for context, listeners. If, yeah, if you haven't yeah, heard us talk yeah. about it enough, uh, Brad has, has now brought up the subject again for us. Anyway, you were saying something. Sorry. No, the, no I, there's, I don't think that there's no final conflict in Scripture. Yeah. There are a few texts that appear to be in tension, but there's no final conflict in Scripture. And I think a great resource, uh, if you're uh, the type of person that loves to dive into apologetic conversation with your coworkers, uh Gleason's uh, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties mm. goes through basically every apparent contradiction in Scripture and resolves it. Uh, mm. Like explains, well, actually, in Hebrew culture, if somebody said this, they would have it would have been commonly understood to mean mm. X or you know, uh, well, this is this is the one account of Saul's death and this is another account of Saul's death, but actually, in context. One is a lie being told by a slave trying to impress David, and the other one is the actual account of how Saul died. Hmm. They're not two conflicting accounts. Hmm. Um, but also, uh, fairly frequently, here's something uh, even amongst Christians, uh, like uh, the Bible is culturally irrelevant. Like hmm. uh, There is so much difference between the culture, uh, Hebrew culture in the Old Testament, or even the culture in the Greco-Roman world, that uh, the apostles are writing to a culture that just has so little in common uh, with our culture that really the the writings aren't all that helpful, at least Mm -hmm. not in all places. Um, And uh, that is, uh, I think, it stumps some Christians. They don't really know how Mm -hmm. to respond to that. Uh, Partially... um, because not a lot of people study Greco-Roman history for fun. Uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you do all the time. <laughs> oh yeah, like, yeah. I think if, mm. we, if we so you know, there's probably not as much separation from mm. our culture and Greco-Roman culture in some ways as people probably imagine. Uh, but even then, like I think if you read scripture in context, read scripture discerningly, you see uh, in scripture that even when uh, the apostles, say, in the New Testament are speaking to specific cultural situations in a New Testament church, uh, they're still talking about it in such a way that, like, the principle underlying their response is plain. And uh, sometimes our responsibility is not just to understand the direct application of Scripture, but also what is the broader principle and how does it apply to my life today, even if my culture is somewhat different. Mm. 
and then Greco-Roman culture. And I think we, we see that uh, often because the, the rationale for a lot of those principles in the New Testament is linked back to creation. Mm. So uh, some of the texts that are, are most frequently criticized have to do with gender and gender roles, at least now yeah. in my yeah. context. Yeah. Um, but often the New Testament authors aren't looking at gender roles in the light of the fall uh, and saying, well, because of the fall, these are the realities now that we have to deal with necessarily. But they're appealing to the way that God created Adam and Eve mm. prior to the fall and saying that's the standard that we should appeal yeah. to. And so uh, if they're pointing to something uh, that is the way it ought to be uh, prior to sin, this is how it would have looked, uh, then whether uh, our culture is different from the culture they were writing to initially or not, we should also be appealing to the pre-fall standard of what gender roles yeah. should look like, for instance. Yeah. Obviously, listeners, you'll remember uh, a couple weeks ago when we talked with Nat Crawford about, about moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, very similar conversation about how do we, how do we recognize the principle that's at play while the, the cultural thing can be superficial, uh, which kind of speaks to Tom's three questions and why we've been asking those questions every week, even in the Old Testament, because the character of God in the Old Testament to the New Testament hasn't changed, and the, the condition and, and situation of man's heart hasn't changed. And then those are principles uh, that, that play and that Scripture really speaks to, regardless which testament and regardless of which era you find yourself living in. I think that's helpful, uh, Brad, and I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, listeners, hopefully you've, you've gotten an understanding of why I invited Brad onto the podcast. You've got a tremendous amount of information on this, and I wish we could go a little bit deeper, but we're probably about at time with our podcast yet for this week. But listeners, let me, let me attempt to summarize some of what we talked about here uh, to keep in mind as you consider this. Um, the first is remembering that the canon of those books that, that both provide the measuring line for all of our faith and practice and also were approved or recognized through a series of very straightforward, agreed-upon criteria. And just secondarily, as you consider any number of the, the criticisms that, that Brad has mentioned uh, here on the podcast, uh, whether it be the, the issue of inerrancy, whether it be the issue of um, uh, conflicts or discrepancies in the text of Scripture, um, we would just uh, remind you the, of some of what Brad has said, just the, the reality that a little bit of study goes a long way in addressing some of those issues. And uh, obviously, if you've got an interest in um, apologetics and addressing that sort of thing, there's some good resources out there. Um, there's some things we could send your direction if you're interested in more information on that subject. Um, and then lastly, just as, as we wrap up here on the podcast today, I, I really just want to stress... Um, and encourage uh, you as listeners to, to, to take the incredible reality of the canon that we have in Scripture, um, just to be um, reminded of the, the truth of these being God's words, these being the in, inspired, um, inerrant word of God to us, and, and treating them that way. Sometimes we have a tendency to fall into a bit of a, a habit of, of taking God's word for granted, of, of thinking about God's word um, as rote or stale, or um, that, that as we read, we just think about it as a, a day in and day out thing we do. But we'd encourage you to really consider uh, the truth of the fact that they are the words of God, and that God has revealed himself to us 
us. God desires a relationship with us and to be reminded in our time as we interact with Scripture uh, that it's an opportunity not just to learn about God, but to really get to know God for who He is, to, to be more uh, reminded of our desire um, to become followers and and understanders of, of who God is um, in and of himself. And so we would just encourage you that way, as you think about the truth of the canon of scripture, um, be encouraged in your reading um, and focus your reading on that aspect. Um, but also, we've got to look forward to this coming Sunday and, and Tom and his message uh, moving from John the Baptist to Peter, the apostle and follower of Christ. Every week we ask Tom um, what he's looking forward to, if there's any requests questions he's wrestling with and how we can prepare our hearts for the message. Um, and he, he just shared some of his thoughts on that theme with me this week as far as how he's, how he's, uh, what he's looking forward to. Uh, Tom was really just saying uh, just the incredible story of how God takes this uneducated, normal fisherman and transforms him, molds him into this shepherd and pillar of the church and getting the chance to explore that incredible transformation in Peter's life uh, is, is something that Tom's looking forward to. Uh, one of the things he's really wrestling with is how to effectively communicate what is what is a common misunderstanding as, as far as the concept of Christ saying to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And what was going on there and what was Christ saying and how has that been misunderstood? And sometimes really wrestling with how to clearly communicate that to us on Sunday. And then lastly, by way of preparation and preparing our hearts to hear this message, uh, one of the things Tom wanted me to mention is, is it's just considering how how Peter's life can be an example to ours. And if God used this man, this this fisherman, um, to do such amazing things uh, for his church and in this world, how, how might God be using me? How might God be using us uh, to reach us, others with the love of Christ and, and just taking to heart that reality? So we'd encourage you to be praying to that end, to be thinking about that as you come to the service on Sunday or as you watch and listen online, whichever way you choose to engage with that service. Um, and that's all we have for this week's uh, podcast. We we're thankful that you've chosen to join us for taking the time uh, to join us on the podcast. And uh, if, if you're following along the weekly reading every week as you prepare uh, for this Sunday's message, we have Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and John chapter 21. We'd encourage you to check those out as you prepare your heart for the message. Know that we are always interested in hearing your questions. So if you have anything from those passages or from others, please shoot your questions my direction or Tom's. We'd love to take a look at those here on the podcast. Um, we'll be praying for you over the course of this week. We'll be asking that God would help your interpretation and, and that, that even more than understanding the specific words of, of God, uh, that you would also take those words to heart and grow in your relationship and your knowledge of the divine author. And uh, that's it for this week's episode. Hopefully you join us again next week for Midweek in the Word. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. As you're reading this week, be encouraged by the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth.